I grab a seat. Hey, good morning to all of you. My name is Zach Nigliazzo. Um, I am the campus pastor at the Anderson campus. So if you've seen, if you know Trey Corey, um, I'm exactly like Trey, except for the hair, the star quality, and the uh, Jason Bourne physique that, that apparently he has that I've heard about. These are the myths that cross over, over Holloman. So, hey, if you would, I want to pray for us today. Um, it is a pleasure to be with you, but let me, let me open us with a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy that it is truly um, by that which, which we are able to live, to know you, and to find life. And I pray, Father, for this time this morning as, as we spend some time together. Thank you that we've been gathered um, for the intent of worship, and I pray, Father, that that would be the result, that you would be lifted up, that you would be exalted in our hearts and our minds and our lives, and we would not leave this place having worshiped you, but we would walk out as, the, as just a reminder that every moment of our life is meant to be worshiped. Father, I pray this morning that you would use a broken vessel like me and that, that the words that come out of my mouth that are of your spirit would be remembered and those that come out that are not of your spirit would quickly be forgotten, but that you would be lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, truly it has been um, a difficult last few days for our nation. Uh, with the loss of life, um, I have been finding myself on Google News, just reading article after article, what's going on, what's being said, um, and just some of the things that we see out there with the, the confusion, the frustration, the anger, defensiveness, and blame, um, and the issues surrounding what we've seen transpire over this last week is they're very complex, and I don't pretend to see them clearly or understand them, let alone be able to explain them. But something that I can stand this morning and say with great confidence is at the root of all of this, we are a broken world. The world is broken. And at the root of that brokenness is something the Bible addresses and, and names. And it's called sin. And it is evident in the world we live in. In fact, sin is so severe and so terrible that we see the results of it every day. But here's the thing. It also took the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, to die to begin the healing process of it. How terrible this thing is that God would sacrifice his life. And that's what it would take to deal with this. And that's what we're going to look at today. Happy day to all of us. This terrible thing that has caused so much pain, sin. That's what I want to look at is this root of brokenness. And here's my plan for today. We're going to dive in in some ins and outs of sin. And then I'm going to introduce, this is Matthew Walford right here sitting in the front row. Stand up and wave, Matthew. Yes, everybody wave at Matthew. Matthew is going to share his testimony toward the end. Matthew is a man who understands the brokenness of this world and in his own life and has seen the transformation that comes when you commit to Jesus Christ and when you start to walk with Jesus Christ. And so may it be a blessing to you when we get there. And, and if you want to follow along today, you're not going to be able to, but you can open up to the book of Romans because I'm going to be all over the book of Romans because Paul has a lot to say about sin. So if you'll join me, we're going to look at this big idea of the Bible called sin. 
Now, let me tell you why I think this is important that we look at it. Why does it matter that we would take a moment this summer to look at a topic like sin? Well, here's where we are. It, first of all, helps us understand life. One of the reasons I believe in Christian truth, one of the reasons that I uh, follow Christian thinking and the Bible is I think it accurately reflects the life that we live. I think God has given us a word that actually portrays what life is like and explains why it's the way it is. And when we study sin, it gives us a clearer picture of a reality. We see evil and hate, prejudice, selfishness, pride, insecurity, divorce, pain, and shame. Why do these things exist? Where do they come from? They come because of sin. And everywhere we look, we see the reality of it. I gave this message last week, and I was talking about the headlines. And the headlines two weeks ago were people storming into cafeterias and coffee shops and taking pieces of people hostage and blowing them up. And the other headlines that were at home were moms who were hurting their children, many losing their lives, many children losing their lives because of their moms. How broken is this world? And we all know the news from this last week. It is ever before us. It's in our homes. My wife and I were joking the other day. I was like, I can put up a facade in front of all you. I can welcome you and shake hands, but I am so grumpy at home. My wife sees it, and your spouses see it too, and your roommates see it. Your dog sees it too. (laughs) The grumpiness we have, the sin is at our home. But you know where I see it most of all? When I look in the mirror, when I look in the mirror, I see (laughs) my faults. Where do they come from? Our human nature, as the world would have you believe, is not fundamentally good. It is fundamentally flawed and fundamentally broken. And when we understand why something is broken and how it's broken, it helps us understand what the solution is. So it's important for us to understand sin because it helps us know what the solution is. Second thing is this, it makes the good news the good news. If you don't understand sin, the gospel loses its impact. If someone doesn't understand the bad news, they won't embrace the good news. Let me give you an example. You see this vial right here? I'm going to blow your mind. Today, this is the cure for cancer, 100% without doubt. Now, if I tell an audience like this, I've got the cure for cancer, there's going to be a few responses. Some of you in here will say, that's just great for humanity, so awesome, awesome, great job. Other people in here will say, you know what, can I talk to you after the service? Because we can make a lot of money on that. Some of you in here would say, you know what, I have a family member who has cancer. Is there any way we could meet up this next week or I could talk to you after the service because... That would so benefit my family. And then there's some, of in, in, some people in the audience who would have cancer. And the doctor would have told them, you have a week to live. And they wouldn't even wait until I was done talking. They would stand up. They would raise their hand. They would claw their way up to the front, interrupt this whole service, and say, can I please have this now? Because <clears throat> you can't embrace the good news unless you understand the bad news, and especially when it's personalized. You have to understand the bad news in your life to receive the good news of what Christ has to offer. You know, one of the great sayings in America, Jesus saves. But what people don't know is what is he saving me from? And one of the common phrases I've seen in ministry over the years is, I don't need saving because they don't understand it. They're broken 
and in need of a savior. Unless you realize the desperate position you're in, that you're broken, separated from God, in need of help, in need of rescue, you just simply won't receive that good news. So it makes the good news the good news. And last thing I would say this, it reminds us as believers that we're meant for more. God sent his son to rescue us for a purpose. We had a big problem and he sent a bigger solution. And please, today, be reminded of the utter terribleness and disgustingness of sin. It is not to be played with. It is deceitful beyond measure, and it is something that God does not want us to take lightly. Remember this. Jesus did not bring antibiotic ointment to put on a scratch. He's not a Band-Aid. He rescued us from death row where we stood condemned, separated from God, deserving death, and he brought us and set us at the king's palace with a seat at his table and becoming a family member. He did not pull us from death and slavery so that we would continue in it. He rescued us for a purpose. So let's dive into what is sin. All right, what is sin? Well, we're going to start with big S and little s. Sin, a sin, and sin, big S. Let's start with little sin. And the scripture kind of gives us a couple of images of this. Let's start in Romans 3.23. It says, for all have sinned, this is little s, and fallen short of the glory of God. And the first picture that we get of this little s sin is this. It's to miss the mark. It's to miss the target. And what does it say the target was? to fall short of the glory of God. His glory is himself. It's his character. So the standard by what we're missing is him, his perfection. And it's not that we even come close to hitting the target. You can see this picture. We completely miss it altogether. We don't even come close. In fact, the very best effort of the very best people don't even hit the target. We've got the Olympics coming up in a few weeks. And the greatest athletes of the world are going to do things that all of us dreamed and wish we could do, except for Trey Corey with his Jason Bourne physique. And we will, we will awe and wonder and see what they do, and we will go, wow, that's amazing. And everything they do is nothing compared to what God and who he is. And even if we had the moral Olympics, and we brought the greatest moral people in the world to that place and watched all the great things that they could do. The Bible says their greatness is like filthy rags compared to God. So we miss and we miss badly. Second idea that we see of sin is Ephesians chapter 2, 1 says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. It's not only a, a, a missing of a mark, it's also stepping across a line. It's a trespass or a violation. God has laid down a law. We have the Ten Commandments. He gave you the Mosaic Law. We have the law in the Scriptures. You see Paul write, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Every time he says don't do this and we do that, that's a line we cross. It's a trespass. So little s sin is a trespass, but it's more than that. He expands it. In Romans chapter 2, he's talking about those people who don't know the law or don't have a law. And listen to what he says. This is 2, 14 through 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law... These not having the law are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. So he says, there's law that's been revealed, but if you go against your conscience, 
Because God has put his law in our heart. We, are, we bear the image of God. And he's put that law in there. And, and when we cross over our conscience, we trespass or violate. But he even goes further. In Romans 14, talking about causing a brother to stumble, a Christian brother or sister to stumble, says, he says this, talking about eating food. He says, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is, it, he is eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. So it's, it's crossing over a revealed law. It's crossing over a conscience or doing anything that's not by faith. Then it's a sin, little s. All right? That's sin. Let me give you a definition. A sin is anything that we do, say, or think that misses or violates God's perfect standard. We all guilty? If you're not, I'd love to talk to you afterward. Or I'll talk to your spouse or roommate afterward. Definitely help us. Doubt your dog will be able to tell me, but let's look at big S sin. That's little S sin. Because big S sin is a little more sinister. And we see this in Scripture, a little bit personified. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me. This is something that caused me to do something. Okay? It is something that created a result in me. Paul, in Romans 7, is going to say, as he talks about struggling with sin, he's going to say, sin which dwells in me. This is something on the inside, causing me to do something on the outside. Sin... This sin, also known as the sin nature, the flesh, a.k.a. the body of death. Here's how I would define this sin. Sin, big S, is this powerful force within our very nature, bent toward rebellion against God. So here's the idea. Big S sin is like a, a huge, powerful tree that is implanted into our very being, and its roots are diving deep into our person, and it's implanted there affecting every aspect of us, and its fruit that it produces are the little s sins. The big s sin is the tree, the little s is the fruit. So that's what sin is, and it negatively influences every part of our mind, our emotions, our will, even our bodies. It affects our lives, how we see each other, how we see ourselves. That's the issue that we're dealing with. That's what sin is is shown to be in Scripture. So how do we get it? There's three pictures that we see in Scripture of how we get it. We start off with this, original sin. This is the sin that we inherit that is passed down from Adam. Here's how it kind of works like this. When God created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden, and he looked at everything, and he said, it's very good. And they were innocent before him with a, with a whole being, made in the image of God. And he gave them one command. Don't trespass this one command. And they did. And here's what happened. It fundamentally changed who they were. It changed them at the very core of their being and nature. No longer innocent and connected with God, now tainted by sin. And there's a word here that we use called total depravity. It's not in the Bible. just a word we use to try to explain it. And here's kind of an idea. Let me tell you what it's not. Total depravity is not, it does not mean that mankind indulges in every sin to the largest degree. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could possibly be. It also does not mean that mankind is incapable of doing good things like love. Even someone who is a non-Christian, not related to the Lord by faith, a mom can still love her child. 
a father still loves his son or daughter. Okay? Tainted, affected by sin, but we still bear the image of God and still reflect his image, although it is tainted. It is distorted. And so what total depravity really means is this. It means that every S aspect, even our best, is tainted and corrupted by sin. We are totally depraved, fully, completely, thoroughly. Not as bad as we could be, not as incapable of good, but completely affected. And Adam passed that on to every person after him. We see this in Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sin. Why did all men sin? Because they were born with this sin nature. One man said, a sinner can only beget sinners. And we're all born with a nature, not bent toward worshiping God, but bent towards turning our back and rebelling against him. And that's why in Ephesians, Paul will say, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, by nature children of wrath. And if not, let me tell you why I think this, we get lost sometimes when we think this isn't true. If we were born without sin nature, then we would not, be succumbing to the effects of death. Children, babies would not die because they wouldn't be under the curse. They wouldn't be guilty of sin. And we would all have the ability, just like Adam and Eve, to choose to not sin and to walk with Christ for a lifetime. And there might be some who would say, I've never sinned. But that's not the case. We see that. By very nature, I have a two-year-old. I know. That's original sin. It's in all of us. Now, the next thing that we see, the next idea that we see as sin is a little bit slightly different, and it's called imputed sin. Now, imputed sin is not, this isn't a word impute that we use at the dinner table. John, would you please impute me some mashed potatoes? Okay, we, most people don't know what this word means. Let me give you a basic definition. Here's the idea. I got this just online. To ascribe to someone by virtue of a similar quality in another. It means to charge to one another. It means to, I have something and I'm giving it to you, not because you have it or you did something, because I have it and I gave it to you. Okay? Let me give you an example of this because to understand imputed righteousness, the best example I can give you, or to understand imputed sin, understand it, the best example I can give you is, is Christ, that he imputes his righteousness to us. And here's how it kind of works here's Christ, and Christ is perfect, he is righteous. And when we, by faith, come under his headship, and headship is a key word here, when we come under his headship, by faith, not because of anything we've done, not because of anything we bring, he gives us his righteousness. No longer does God see our sin, but he sees our righteousness. We've been clothed in his righteousness. It's his, and he imparts it to us by nature of who he is, not by nature of what we've done. Does that make sense? Now, here's the problem we all have. When we are born into this world, we come in under the headship of Adam because Adam is the head of our race. Adam is the one who is the representative of our whole race, and he was the first man. And so we all come under his headship as the first man. And so we get what he had. We get what he passed on, but it doesn't just pass on 
Through children, it passes straight to us, just like Christ's righteousness passed straight through us. Let me show you this in Romans 5. So then, as through one transgression, this is Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even through one act of righteousness, this is Christ, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, we were made sinners, but through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. This is imputed sin and imputed righteousness. From Adam, disobedience, one transgression, condemnation to all, many made sinners. That's imputed sin straight to us. And righteousness comes from Christ. When we come under his headship by faith, his obedience, one righteous act, death on a cross, justification to all, many made righteous. That's imputed. And then if that's not enough, the Bible tells us this, that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That if you don't believe in original sin, if you don't believe in imputed sin, all you have to do is look at your life and go, you have crossed the line, you have missed the mark, you have personal sin. Every one of us has fallen short or trespassed his perfect standard. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Romans 3.12. So that's where we stand. That's what sin is. Now, how does it affect us? Okay? I want to give you a couple things. This is the consequences of sin that we see. Number one, we see a separation. Separation is a big, big result of sin. It says, for the wages of sin is death. And what is death? Death is the separation of the soul from the body. When we die, the soul or the spirit is gone and there's nothing but the body, which is the flesh and blood, but there's no life. When you remove the source of life, you have death. And the problem with this phrase for the wages of sin is death is we didn't only own physical death, we earned spiritual death because we became separated from the giver of life. And when we were separated from the giver of life, we end up being dead spiritually. Going on one step further, Romans 5.10, Paul tells us this, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. Who needs to be reconciled? Someone who's separated. When there's division and disunity, you have to have reconciliation. Why did we need reconciliation? And Jesus brought the ministry of reconciliation. Because we were enemies separated from God. So sin brings separation. And I want to tell you, this is a classic illustration we use to help explain the gospel. We talk about this gulf, this huge gulf that no one can cross. No one by his own effort can jump across. And the cross comes in between. And that's the pathway to get back to God. And that's a great illustration. But one of the things that we miss on this illustration sometimes is this. The guy who is separated from God is not standing there going, please, God, I want to come over there. If you would just help me, I want to get to you. You know what's in his backpack? Guns and knives and rocket launchers because he's an enemy of God. And if he could get across there, he would try to blow up God. That's who we are. We are enemies in need of reconciliation. We're not standing on the edge wanting to get there. We've actually turned away. And if we had to go across, we'd come as an enemy. That's who Jesus died for. That's the separation of sin. I want to give you an illustration of this really quick. Matthew wants you to go stand in the middle of the auditorium. I want everyone, like he's the bride, you know. Everybody has to face the bride when they come down the aisle. You're a beautiful bride, Matthew. Um, Everybody look at Matthew. Turn and look at Matthew. And I want you to know something. When you are rightly, Matthew is going to pretend to be God right now. You're doing a great job, Matthew. Okay. 
So serious, right? Um, when you are facing God, rightly related to God, reconciled to God, you see him and you see the faces of the other people. Now turn away from God. Look the other direction. And you'll notice this. If you truly were to turn and look the other direction, turn your back towards God, you would not see him, nor would you see any other face in this auditorium. Because sin separates us from the maker, the creator, the giver of life, but it also separates us from one another. Why is there racial tension in this world? Why are these deaths happening? Why is there hate and envy and prejudice and all these things happening? Because if we're not rightly related to God, we can't rightly be related to each other. We are not reconciled to God. We won't have reconciliation with one another. That's how devastating and difficult sin is is. And if we don't understand God, if we're not right related with God, how can we even hope to understand what he's trying to do through all of this? Next thing we see is this. It brings separation, but it also brings slavery. Jesus said in John eight thirty four, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And that's all of us. A friend shared this with me. Sin takes you further than you want it to go. It keeps you longer than you want it to stay. And it costs you so much more than you thought you would pay. And the reality is for for those who are born into sin, it's like we're born on death row in a cage. It is strong bars. It's got a door and it is locked from the outside in a lock that there's no way we could humanly break. And that's where we stand. And it's out of that that God sent his son to save us. And Jesus comes in, and because of his one act of righteousness, he unlocks the cage for each one of us and slams that door open and calls us out. And we have the option to come out and to freedom, no longer to be a slave. The problem is that for us believers, we have a tendency and a propensity to keep going back and sitting in the cage and closing the door, even though it's not locked. Because it enslaves us. Listen to some words from Paul. Just listen to the words. This is Romans 6, 12 through 16. Paul is writing and he says this. Therefore, speaking to believers, do not let sin reign in the mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those, as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? He's saying, don't go back to the cage. You were born into slavery, don't go back. And every time you sin, you step back into that cage. And God is always calling you to come back out. Don't stay there. And what Satan wants to do to keep you in the cage is guilt and shame. Because if he can ride you with guilt and ride you with shame, where you don't confess it, you don't bring it out, and it still has power over you, you will sit in the cage like you did before you placed your faith in Christ. Galatians 5.1 says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Don't let sin enslave because that's what it wants to do. The other effect 
of sin is this, is struggle. It's a life of struggle. I gave a message to high school kids one time, and I said, if you're a Christian, you're a hypocrite. You know why that's true? Because when you're not a Christian, you have one nature, sin, and that's what you act from. That's what you operate from. When you become a believer, God puts his spirit within you. You you are a new creation in Christ. You have a new nature, but you still have the old nature. So you will always be at war with these two natures. And you know what you should do, but you fail to do what you want to do. You know you shouldn't look at that, but you do. You know you shouldn't expose yourself to that, but you do. You are a first-rate hypocrite as a Christian. Because we know what we should do and we struggle. And that's the struggle of the life that we live. Let me bathe over you the words of Paul in Romans 7.15 and see if that doesn't explain our experience. He says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate And if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. And if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in this principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And the struggle with sin causes us to have a struggle with God, a struggle with others, and a struggle with ourselves. And it will not be eradicated. This sinful nature in us, this big-ass sin that lives within us, will not be eradicated until until we go see Jesus and he gives us a new body and completely removes it. That's the, those are the consequences that we face with sin. That we have separation, slavery, and struggle. So how is it defeated? Well, I hope we all know the answer to that question. Because it's Jesus. It's his death and his resurrection. His work on the cross is what saves us. We were locked in a cage. Jesus comes with the perfect life on earth. And then he pays a price that we owe. And simply by believing in him that he died on the cross for our sins, because we have to personalize this. Understand the good news for yourself. You've got to understand the bad news of yourself. He died on the cross, paid your sin, my sin, our sin, paid the, the penalty we owe, and offers us eternal life. And by simply believing, we can have that. So I want to just encourage you, if you've never done that today, All you have to do is simply believe and receive the free gift and your cage gets opened and he calls you out to freedom. But for the rest of us, you are saved by faith, but you have to continue to live by faith. And so for all of us, I want to just encourage us, keep remembering and put the cross of Christ at the forefront of your mind and remind yourself every day that Christ saved me not to be in the cage, but to be at his table and to live like someone who is in his kingdom.
So continue to live by faith. Second thing that we defeat this is by the Spirit. God has not left us alone, but he has put an advocate within us. He's put his Holy Spirit within us to help us resist sin. And Galatians 5.16 tells us, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit and let the Spirit live through you, you will not sin. You cannot sin when you're walking by the Spirit. When you're not walking by the Spirit, you open yourselves up to sin. How do you walk by the Spirit? You abide, you submit daily and minute by minute to Him. You yield your heart, your mind to Him. You walk by the Spirit. Next, another way we defeat sin is confession. The cage that we talk about is in darkness. And when we bring things to the light, when we call it out and we confess it and we name it and we let it be known to God and to one another, it loses its power over us. We step out of the cage, we call it what it is, and we bring it into the light. 1 John 1, 6-7 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And he talks about confessing. And that takes vulnerability to do that. It takes being open. That's a hard place to be. But guilt and shame is what wants to keep you back in the cage, and it takes vulnerability to bring it to the light. The last thing I want to share with you is this. How is it defeated by other people's help? Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why do we talk about being involved in small groups and home groups and grace groups here at Grace where you're in community with other people? Because one of the greatest ways that you walk with Christ is in community. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is not missing that fact when he says encourage one another day after day so that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He knows that left alone, we can all be picked off. When we don't have openness and people in our lives who speak truth into our lives, we need the body of Christ to be in our life. And you're going to hear that story in Matthew's testimony. And before I enter invite Matthew up, I want to to say something about just where we are at Grace Bible Church. We all are broken and messy. Even the pastors, I just want to tell you, Blake Jennings, he's messed up. (laughs) Trey Corey, I'm in his accountability group. He's messed up. We are all broken. And the worst thing you can do is look at someone else and have the comparison game and go, oh, their life. Everyone is broken and messy. In fact, I would say ministry is entering into the messiness. And one of the things that we want to do, Brad Evans is one of our pastors. He's been here for years. Um, He's been at the Anderson campus, but he oversees from all of our campuses congregational care. And one of the things we see is I can't tell you how many calls we get during the week and during the months of people who need help because life is messy and broken. People need each other. And one of the problems that we have was we got to have a paradigm shift because people think that if I call the church office, if I call the professional, then they'll help me. And a lot of times we don't know everybody. 
And so it's hard to step into a life and really be able to speak truth and, and, and have accountability. You, what you really, really, truly, the best effort would be that we have accountability with the people who we're walking with in, in small community. Let me tell you something. If persecution hits America in the next few years and, we're, and our budgets dry up and our buildings get torched, you know what? Church is going to look a lot different. Church isn't going to be where a guy who has a seminary degree comes up and preaches in a big auditorium. We're going to be sitting in houses hiding, having secret churches like they do in China. And you know what? There's not going to be a, a, a professional pastor at every one of those sites giving sermons and saying, I have the answers for you. We believe in the priesthood of the believer that God has put the spirit in each one of us and that we can meet the needs of each other if we will take the opportunity to do so. And so Brad is working really hard to try to help equip our people and say, you know what, we have opportunities for you to be trained and equipped if you feel like you can't do it, to speak into each other's lives and to be the minister that your friend needs. And not just think if you call the professional. That's where the help is. Because every one of us has the spirit of Christ in us to work. So a couple things I just want to point you to. Um, one, we have a website, gracebible.org, Connect Care. It's under our Connect section. And there's opportunities to be trained if you want. We have a class called Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemers that helps you think through and how to meet the needs of the messiness of each other's lives. I want to encourage you to think about that, prayerfully consider that. There's other ministries that are also on there that if you need specific care, we do have specific care for those who are going through grief, who've lost loved ones or lost family members or whatnot. We have... For, for different stages of life, we have prayer ministry, we have visitation ministry. There's things like that that we have on. Please go to that website. But think about the utter, utter need that we all have of each other in community. We can't overlook that. Now, here's the deal. If you forget everything I just said and everything I said this morning, I don't want you to forget what you're about to hear from Matthew. Matthew, if you'll come up. Matthew has seen the ravage of sin, and he has seen the conquering power of Christ. So if you would, would you please give him your attention as he shares? Thanks. Howdy. Howdy. Uh, my name is Matthew. I'm a believer in Jesus, and I've struggled with alcoholism and cocaine addiction. I grew up in a loving Christian home. I had both my parents. They're still married. Um, my sister and a dog. My dad has been a preacher uh, or a full-time minister for literally my entire life. Uh, as a matter of fact, my mom went into labor with me during one of his Sunday morning sermons. Literally my whole life I've been interrupting churches. So that's, that's good. I've got that going for me. Um, so really what I'm, what I'm saying is I grew up in church. Um, I, I gave my life to Christ on July the 5th of 1993. Uh, being a preacher's son, I was often called upon to lead singing or read scripture or hand out communion or pass the offering plate. Um, or for some illustration point, like, again, is still happening in my life this morning. Thank you, Zach. <laughs> Can't get away from it, man. <laughs> um, and as a matter of fact, one, one of the best one examples of that, my dad was uh, speaking at this camp for teenagers in uh, Terre Haute, Indiana. And he took a bunch of flash paper. I don't know if you know what flash paper is. It's a magician's tool. Uh, it's this really highly flammable instantly ignited and gone paper. And so he took a bunch of that and put it all over my shirt and then lit me on fire. Um, 
I don't know what the lesson was about that day. I know it was a pretty cool uh, illustration, and I know that my mom was not there to object to that happening. My point is I was given a, a solid Christian upbringing. My, we, we read the Bible together in our family. We prayed together. We were at church three times a week minimum. And yet with all of that going for me, I fell into sin. Um, I drank for the first time when I was 15 years old. I got blackout drunk for the first time a few days after my 16th birthday. That became a reoccurring theme in my life. My low self-esteem and desire for approval found me drinking more and more throughout high school. It wasn't enough for me to simply drink with my friends. I wanted to be the best at it. By the time I graduated from Bryan High, I was drinking to excess daily. I was still active in church throughout that time, but I tried my best to hide my sin and my pain. Church was the place to be, to wear a mask, not to be authentic. This continued for a really long time. About a month after my 21st birthday, uh, I tried cocaine for the first time. It terrified me. And I told myself I would never touch it again. I was wrong. One of the things that I've learned about sin is that it tends to lead to more sin. And so one night a few years, a couple years later, I had a few drinks and I tried cocaine again. And this time it was as if I had found my reason to live. From that point on, I began to add cocaine to my drinking routine. And within a couple of months of that, I was out of control. I was involved in a single vehicle accident one night that I have no memory of. Fortunately, I was not hurt, but it was a wake-up call. So I came clean to my parents about my drinking and my cocaine use and asked them for help. My parents had no idea what to do with me. So we made an appointment with my doctor. Uh, He suggested that I go into inpatient treatment hospital. Uh, So a few days later, I took off for the Hill Country uh, for 30 days And, you know, I was told I was going to rehab. I got there and told I was in a class three mental institution. So I guess they tell you that after you get there on purpose. Um, But while I was there, I was introduced to uh, the 12-step recovery for the first time. And I remember my first day, they had these two big posters on the wall, and the the, the 12 steps were written on them in the 12 traditions. But the 12 steps on the one side, and I remember reading those that first day, and I realized something. I said, I saw, this is all about God. I know all about him. This is going to be easy. It's it's not. Just spoilers. Um, So after I got home from treatment, uh, I started working through my program of recovery. And it was going okay, but I I never really fully gave myself to it. After about six months, I was still sober. But I had decided at that point that I no longer needed to go to meetings. I didn't need to be held accountable. And I did not need that community that I had formed there. So I struck out on my own to do my own thing. Around this time, the church where my dad is the minister was in need of a youth minister. And so I applied. And while I was not hired for the permanent role, I was hired to an interim role. Uh, The church was aware of my former struggles and, like me, believed that those struggles were behind me. Uh, And so with this new role, I flourished. I was not doing anything intentional to maintain my sobriety. But I was able to stay sober throughout this. I was, I was really active. I was in the Word. I was doing good things. But that ended rather quickly. When a permanent youth minister was hired and I was no longer needed, I began to resent the church. They had not properly thanked me for my eight months of hard work with our youth group. I was angry and I kept it bottled up. And two, le- two weeks later, I was drunk again. This is where cocaine really took hold of my life. 
it was a whole lot easier for me to hide cocaine use than drinking from my friends, my family, my girlfriend, my whoever, employers. Because drunk Matthew is really, really easy to spot. Uh, he kind of sticks out. And so I began to use cocaine pretty much exclusively. I didn't know what to do with the pain and the anger and just emotions in general. All I knew is I wanted to not feel them, and cocaine made that happen. So the problem there is now I need to feed that monster. I mentioned earlier how sin leads to more sin. This was certainly true at this time in my life. Pretty soon all I cared about was cocaine and how I could get my hands on as much of it as possible. And so I spent literally every penny I had on that. And when that wasn't enough, I began to steal things pretty much exclusively from my parents, whether it was money, electronics, tools, anything that I could turn into cash and turn into cocaine. I would have my dealer pick me up and drive me to the pawn shop, literally. And then because of that, my parents have all this stuff missing, and so now I'm constantly lying about it, right? Well, I don't know where your Blu-ray player is, Dad. That's weird. Your guitar? No, never seen it. Huh. And so that went on for a couple of months. Um, Eventually, everything kind of came to a head. Uh, The police were involved. It was messy. And we realized some change needs to happen. I realized some change needs to happen. And so I started back into recovery, but again, my heart really wasn't in it. Um, I wanted to get the heat off my back. I didn't want to get better. And so over the next couple of years, I had a lot of highs and lows. Um, There was, uh, well, I managed to meet a beautiful woman and fall in love. Um, And we met actually on a mission trip in Belize where my family, every other member of my family currently is on that mission trip right now. But we got married in December of uh, 2012. Uh, She'd been living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area throughout our entire relationship. And she moved here so that we could start our married life together. Unfortunately, I was living a complete lie at the time. Uh, I was working 12 hours a day, six days a week, to support a nearly $1,000 a week cocaine habit. When we said I do, she had no idea. Our marriage started started off poorly, obviously. I was not able to contribute financially or emotionally. Uh, When she realized what was happening, she caught me, literally red-handed. I tried to quit, and I promised her that I would quit. I wasn't going to do this anymore. Every time I made that promise, I meant it. Every time I made that promise, it was a lie. I could not stay sober for more than three weeks, and that was my first eight months of marriage. On July the 23rd, 2013, at the urging of my, the counselor that I was seeing at the time, I walked through the doors of Celebrate Recovery at Grace Bible Church for the first time. I was nervous. I was angry. I was resentful. I was hopeless. And I was hungover. Uh, it was like 7 o'clock at night. I was still hungover. That gives you an idea of what I was doing the day before. Um, but I've been sober since that day. See, when I got to CR, I was willing to do anything and everything that I was told or asked to do. One of the focal points of Celebrate Recovery is uh, is confession and accountability. We were just talking about that. In step four, we make a moral inventory of ourselves. In step five, we confess our faults to ourselves, to God, and to someone we trust. In step six, we become willing to have God remove our character defects. And in step seven, we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Essentially, that means that we admit our wrongs and poor choices to each other. We look for reoccurring patterns and seek God's help in ridding our lives of that sin. See, this is an ongoing and ever-evolving process. As we deal with one sin or one issue, we find something else to work on. The key to this process being effective is rigorous honesty. See, I realized that I was not identified by my sin. 
I'm identified by who I am in Christ. And with that in common with the other people in Celebrate Recovery, the issue or the hurt or the habit or the hang-up that we're dealing with loses its power. Our power comes from Christ and from meaningful connections with other people, other sinners, just like me. We have this phrase at Celebrate Recovery that you're only as sick as your secrets. You've maybe heard that somewhere else before. Um, And see, transparency takes away that sickness. In fact, James 5 verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. See, I grew up in church. Um, I spent a lot of time reading the Bible and trying to live out my faith accordingly. But I never understood that verse or what that meant or that healing until I came to celebrate recovery and started living my life that way. It's amazing to see where I am now from where I was three years ago. I'm not perfect. I still struggle daily, uh, sometimes hourly, sometimes every five minutes. I'm like, dang it, I messed up again. But that's okay because I now have a plan of action to overcome those struggles. This is where I go off script for a second. Uh, I just want to say real quick, if you're here and you're struggling today, that's okay. Um, It's okay to struggle. It means that you're human. Um, If you think that you don't struggle, we'll talk about your pride later. But it's okay. But don't leave without making a connection with somebody. Find some help. You have some great resources through Grace Bible Church to get help for those struggles. You can get my contact information on grace-bible.org backslash the landing. You can get it on our Celebrate Recovery page there as well. Um, If you need help, get help. There's no shame in that. I promise. So my last, my last little thing, um, this is a, a, a verse that I read actually in a jail cell uh, at the county jail here in town for the first time, or the, the first time it really impacted me. And so it's kind of become my mission statement. It's 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16. It says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Thank you. Let me, uh, let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for, uh, for reconciliation. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your work in Matthew's life. And, and thank you that, that he is walking with you now. And I pray, Father, for continued obedience, continued um, good struggle against the flesh, against sin, for him and for all of us, that we might truly be ones with testimonies of overcoming, testimonies of life transformation, um, and testimonies of truth and righteousness that would change the world that we live in. In Jesus' name, amen.